Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the 12-6 podcast. I'm your host, Colin McHugh. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't heard all of the previous conversations we've had, I suggest going back after we're done here and checking them out because we've had some fantastic guests on this year. We had Garrett Cole, all-star starting pitcher for the Houston Astros. We had New York Times bestselling author Jeff Passan and all-star third baseman and budding entrepreneur Alex Bregman. Today's guest is, in my opinion, one of the funniest and brightest guys in the league, Washington Nationals pitcher Sean Doolittle. The work he and his wife Erin have done in their time in Oakland and now in Washington was super inspiring to me, so I've been secretly following him for years on social media. You know, we got to be Twitter friends recently, but this was the first time we got to actually sit down and meet in person. He's super funny, quirky, and extremely insightful on topics ranging from labor rights to taking care of our veterans at home to Star Wars trivia. He and his wife are currently supporting an organization called Operation Finally Home, based in New Braunfels, Texas. Their mission is to build brand new homes for returning veterans, giving them a home and a place to start transitioning from military back to civilian life. It allows them to go from serving their country to serving their communities as seamlessly as possible. Their stories are amazing, and you can find out more at operationfinallyhome.org. Today on the podcast, we talk about Sean's legendary transition from power hitter to all-star reliever, how respecting the game is changing in 2019, and which Star Wars movie is best. As always, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do that so that you're all caught up when new episodes air. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Sean Doolittle. First of all, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> thanks for having me. You're the second non-Astro guy on the on the podcast. So you're breaking ground. But I'm the first player without a World Series ring. Oh, right? damn. Yeah. <laughs> we were, you're opening it up now. Oh, I, man. I appreciate that. You know, we, we try to cater to all audiences, non-ring winners, future <laughs> ring winners. Um, yeah, that's this is great. I'm really happy we got to do this. We're down here in West Palm Beach, and... It works out perfectly because we're both here at the same complex and yeah, uh, getting close to the season. Yeah, getting getting real close. But uh, going back, you are from New Jersey, correct? Yeah, grew I grew up, up in, New in South Jersey outside of Philly. So you and Mike already, boys, Jersey boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he still reps. He still reps South Jersey. I think he's got uh, he's got his area code. The eight five six is on uh, all the trout shoes this year. So oh really? Yeah, he reps Jersey really hard and. Um, you know, I, I, after I left for college, I really haven't spent much time back there. But, yeah. you know, him and like maybe Todd Frazier, they're like, you know, they're, they're the Jersey Frazier. boys. They're the Jersey yeah. boys, you know. Um, so you went to school in New Jersey and grew up high school in New Jersey, everything. Yeah. And then you went to UVA. Yeah. Played baseball there, which I didn't know. I probably should have known this, but you were a first baseman and a pitcher. Right. You did yeah, both. I did both. And that was a big reason why I ended up there. Um, I maybe I was stubborn uh, coming out of high school, but I wanted an opportunity to pitch and play a position in college. And uh, I took a number of visits. Um, I took four official visits and it, it came down to Virginia because they were a school that was going to give me the opportunity to pitch and play first base or, or outfield when I wasn't pitching. So it, it worked out. It's weird how it worked out because both of those things really came in handy <laughs> down the road. So um, I'm glad I ended up there. I got to, you know, Ryan Zimmerman, my teammate right now. Uh, I was a freshman when he was a junior. So I got to watch 
uh, and learned from him when I was in college. And it's really cool that I get a chance to play with him again now. Right. That's cool how things kind of come full circle at this yeah. level. The funnel gets real small and like you've played with or against just about everybody in the league. Baseball is a small world anyway, but you know, sometimes those connections, um, you know, he was such a big influence on my career at such an early point, you know, when I was in college and now, you know, sharing a locker room with him every day. And, yeah. you know, he's the face of the franchise. He was the first overall pick uh, uh, of the, you know, the Nationals once they moved back to D.C. And to see what he means to that city and that team, it's just, it's just, it's really cool. He's put in some serious work there. He took me way back. <laughs> Second homer I ever gave up in the big leagues was to him. And he hit it into the apple in City, in city Field. He hit it into the apple and the <laughs> apple came up. It was like it was making fun of me as it was coming up. <laughs> It was mocking me. <laughs> nice pitch. It's a uh, home run. <laughs> there's this wonderful gif of me turning around and just right into the center field camera. It like zooms into my face. No way. And it just, just all the expletives come out of my mouth. My dad saw it. I remember like two days later and he was like, son, <laughs> we're going to need to talk. <laughs> it's like, you give up a homer in the big leagues and then we'll talk. All right. How about that? Yeah. But you were a great hitter in high school and college and you got drafted as both. You were the original Shohei Otani. Wow. No, I, I just got drafted as a hitter, actually. Just as a hitter? Just as a hitter. Oh, yeah. even better. Yeah, I was drafted as a first baseman and, by Oakland in, in 2007. And uh, I, I they moved me. I started playing some outfield as well. But, um, man, that feels like a long time ago. There's not a lot of guys that saw it. Um, fortunately, I did play with Max when I was a hit. Max Scherzer, I, I, I played on a fall league team with him one year when I was a when I was a hitter still. So he's seen it a little bit, but it's weird how it's taken on like a, like mythical proportions. Yeah. The, the further uh, removed I am from that part of my career, the more it was like, you should have seen this guy, man. Like he used to hit like 500 foot homers. And I was like, I, I, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. you should have been there. Like <laughs> <laughs> I was really good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, unfortunately like, yeah, I started having some injury issues. I was drafted in 07. I was in AAA in 09, and and I started having – I had two major knee surgeries, and uh, ultimately uh, I tore a tendon in my wrist, and I missed I missed three – essentially three full seasons in the minor leagues. Yeah. And um, the A's ultimately came to me, our, our farm director, and asked if I wanted to start a throwing program. I had, I had this bulky cast on my right arm from, like, my – the knuckles on my hand – up past my elbow because of the wrist injury I had. They didn't want me to be able to like turn my wrist at all. So yeah. I, and it, it kept my arm bent at like a 45 degree angle. Like I kind of looked like C-3PO from Star Wars <laughs> because it was this shiny black cast that kept my arm bent. And um, they wouldn't let me put, I couldn't put a glove on my hand because of my, my wrist injury. So I had to have somebody catch for me. And they would flip me the ball like a, like a starting quarterback yeah. you know, before like a football game. And I got – in a way, it was a – the timing of it, that was like one of the first breaks I caught because it gave me time to get on this throwing program for eight weeks while my wrist was in this cast that by the time I got on a mound, my arm was in a really good place. It wasn't like they just like put me on a mound and said, go for said, it. you know, let's see what you got. Right. They really like – I was able to build up and, yeah. and I spent the whole summer of 2011 working on pitching and doing a lot of dry work in the mirror of the weight room, trying to like feel my way through it again. The whole time too, like I'm still doing wrist rehab, trying to come back as a position player. Yeah. And ultimately by, by like mid August, the doctor was like, you probably need surgery. 
and you're looking at like a six to eight month recovery. And I was like, well, that puts 2012 in jeopardy. So now I'm looking at missing my fourth year in a row. Like I was like, I can't do it. And, and I asked to switch, switch to pitching. They brought an advanced scout in to watch me throw live to hitters. And they were like, Hey, there's a rookie ball game. Like <laughs> last day of the rookie ball seasons in like two days, you want to pitch in it? Like you're going to have to go back to, you know, the beginning I was, 20 i was 24 25 and yeah and and i was like the happiest guy in the league i was so stoked to get back on the field i mean after missing that much time yeah it was like three years like yeah. I, I i i hurt my knee initially in may of 09 and then it took until uh, i guess august of 2011 to get back into a game Jeez. Uh, so i was so stoked i i was so stoked i, I walked the first hitter and in the pro, it just, in like the in like the next two pitches, he stole second and third on me because I, I had no idea like what was going on. Had you pitched at all like in that in that interim no, time? No, I hadn't pitched at all really. Um, you know, since so I left college in 07, and that was the last time I pitched. So it wasn't like totally foreign to me, but some things like managing a running game yeah. was a little different. Um, the whole thing, the way it worked out, in hindsight, it's so surreal because. When I signed in 07, like Billy Bean joked that I came with an insurance plan. Um, and uh, that was one of the reasons why they they took me. And, you know, the fact that we had to uh, we had to activate it. It's just weird how it all worked out, you know, but I went to instructional league in 2011 and started the next year in high A, Yeah, um, you know, going all the way back to the beginning. But uh, man, like, it'll change your perspective. And, and, and I'm grateful for that experience. You know, it would have been nice to be one of these guys that gets into the big leagues, you know, in a few months or something like that. Right. But I'm super grateful for the, uh, that experience, the having to go through that and the perspective that it's given me, I think it's, uh, it's made everything that that's come my way that I've, I've just been super appreciative of every opportunity I've gotten. Yeah. And you look like me, you were in the minor leagues for I mean, for five, six parts of six seasons, right? Right. So you understand the minor league life. We've yeah. talked about this a little bit, um, and you've talked about this on, on social media too, and yeah. just the commentary that's been going around about the inequity between uh, the big leagues and the minor leagues. Right. It's just, it's crazy how one day when you cross oh. over that line, everything yeah. changes. You know, yeah. I, I tell the story of, I got my first big league paycheck, and I got taxed more on my first two-week big league paycheck than I had made in the two years combined previously in the minor leagues. <laughs> and you're like, how in the hell is that remotely possible? Right. Yeah, but we're starting hopefully we're starting to see some at least some conversation around the idea of changing that. Yeah, and we've seen we've seen over the last 6 months um there's been some there's been some definite progress that's been made and and it's been, you know, long overdue, but um it's it's really good that these conversations are are starting to hit the mainstream mm -hmm. and you know we're seeing some traction and you know, the blue jays have announced that they're going to start paying their minor league guys a little bit more money which is you know it's a, it's a it's still below the poverty line still but it's marginal, a, it's a yeah. good step in the right it's right. a step in the right direction uh, major league baseball announced uh, yesterday that it's going to sit down and it sounds like they're going to do some kind of bargaining session with minor league baseball to look at improving the conditions, the uh, the pay, the um, some of the facilities and and living arrangements. There's a lot I don't know about how that's going to work, uh, but um, uh, I'm uh, I'm glad to see my, my minor league experience was so different than a lot of guys. I was I was so fortunate that when I I I got a substantial signing bonus when right. I got drafted. So like. 
I was in an apartment, a two bedroom apartment with five guys. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was living on an air mattress. I was sleeping on the floor of a bus. Like I was doing all that stuff, but I, I had the safety net right. underneath me that 99% of those guys don't have. Um, I didn't need a job in the off season. So many of these guys, they pick up a seasonal job in the off season. And in a lot of cases, they make more money in the six months that they're at home in the off, doing whatever it is that they're doing, whether it's giving lessons. Um, some guys pick up like seasonal jobs working at like Christmas tree farms and stuff like that. Like, or some guys go down to Latin America. They play in Venezuela yeah. or Puerto Rico, Dominican. And you can make a little bit of cash down there. Yeah, yeah they, in, in one month down there, they make more money than they do, you know, maybe during the course Length, of a season. But season. it also means more time away from their family. Right. So they have to, they have to weigh that in. And, and more chance of injury and then irrelevance. Yeah. So like, like I don't want to romanticize like my minor league experience because like, I, yeah, I had some great times. I, I've made friends that, you know, will be friends for the rest of my life. Like I had some incredible experiences and, and it was a lot of fun, but like that experience also, it, it broke a lot of guys. Oh, like, yeah. like, and you can't, I, I don't know, like, like it's important to tell like that side of the story. Like sometimes I, I think like, I'm glad the narrative has shifted from the minor leagues being like, you know, this rite of passage, like, well, we all had to do it. We right. all had to put up with the, the $20 a day meal money. And we all had to put up with the bus rides and the long hours and, and, and the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And it's kind of shifting to, it's well it's shifted a lot in the past like year, six months, especially to like, Hey, like, these these guys deserve better than this. Yeah, that's still not okay. No, it's just it's not to do okay. It. Yeah. Like just because you made it through, like doesn't make it okay. And you're right. starting to hear guys in the big leagues talk about how like lucky they were to get through that, and and that guys that are are still in the minor leagues deserve uh, deserve better. For every one of our stories, the me and you, where we get through yeah. the minor leagues to make it to the big leagues, and then have some success staying at the big leagues. There's hundreds yeah. of minor league stories of guys who got maybe all the way through AAA, maybe spent six, seven years trying to do this right. with literally nothing to show for it at the end. Right. And and now you're talking about guys who maybe they got drafted out of high school. Yeah. Maybe they went to a year or two community college or, or, or three, even if they went to three years and got drafted after their junior year. You're now guys that are that do that. You're now 28, 29, pushing 30. You have a family. Can you press pause again and go back to school? Right. You know, like it, yeah. it, it, now you're not going to get paid at all because you're going to go back. You're you're going to try to get your degree. So like that transition after that, like that can be especially rough for those guys. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to to readjust and 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 land on your feet without a financial safety net underneath you. You know, it can be tough. And, and you know, you're all doing this whole thing is there's this carrot at the end of the stick that's like getting to the big leagues, yeah. right? And then as hard as it is to get to the big leagues, it's super hard to stay in the big leagues. Like there's so many things that have to continue. You have to, you have to be good. You have to, the, the timing has to work out. You have to catch a break. I mean, I saw so many guys, because I got hurt in AAA, and I, so I was essentially in, in AAA from, you know, 2009 to when I got called up really. And I saw so many guys that were plenty good enough to play in the big leagues, right? but were blocked by a guy that 
a veteran guy that was maybe making more money than them or um it was uh, out of options or there was yeah right like it came down to a numbers game or you know a prospect got got a chance before they did because they had more money invested in him like there's all these games that go on behind the scenes and i mean it, it it's a tough lifestyle and, and and i just don't think that you know you should have to like sacrifice your dignity or sell your soul to be able to have a chance at your your ultimate goal whatever it is i, I agree and that's Leading up to 2021, our CBA is going to be over. Right. Collective bargaining agreements over in the end of 2021. Right. I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I've felt for a while now that minor leaguers need a voice at the table. Yeah, not just obviously. There's a lot of things going. There's a lot of economic factors and a lot of history and a lot of precedent uh, that goes into these negotiations. But it really does feel like the forgotten people group. Right. And I, I don't, you're right. I would love to see, especially we, we, we just, we kind of talked about that statement Major League Baseball released about, they use the term bargaining with, yeah. with minor league baseball. And I, I would love for those guys to have uh, representation at that table. Yeah. Um, and I think they deserve it. And logistically, I don't know if it, it how it would work, but they they need to be at that table. Right. You know, they're they're doing so much work. They're kind of like the the workforce that props up this industry, mm-hmm. uh, Major League Baseball, that we've seen grow to, you know, this ten, eleven billion dollar a year industry. Right. And the fact that, you know, they're they're there were lobbyists, uh, you know, advocating on behalf of circumventing labor laws so that they could continue to be paid less like that's that i don't know that that doesn't sit right with me and and i'm glad you know maybe things are changing maybe right. things, we're, we're starting to have this conversation which is a a really good step in the right direction but there's so many reasons on top of that why you know we as major league baseball players as people in this game should want them to be paid better i mean these are guys that in the future are going to be in our shoes they're going to be up against collective bargaining issues, you know, in, in, in the big leagues, hopefully at some point in their career. And like, I don't know, I, I just think we need to kind of pay it forward and, and, you know, at the very least use our voice to continue to, to help the conversation. For sure. The guys before us have set the tone for us. Like right. the guys who came before us sacrificed some things so that younger guys who were in the big leagues right. could have some more rights. And I right. think, you know, as the league is getting younger, whether it's, forced by teams for the league to eat younger or not. Right. These younger guys are going to have to, like you said, continue to pay it forward to the guys who aren't quite there yet. And I think there is the labor situation in, in Major League Baseball has long been an industry fraught with, you know, conflict and tension. And it's it's been complicated for a long time. Right. And like you said before, though, it is we're growing into a 10 plus billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. And there are not just players, there are other people groups, other um, industries that are propping this up, that are right. helping us do what we're doing. And um, we talked about this a little bit online uh, about the workers up in New York. Yeah. The new era workers yeah. in New York. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about that, um, about your, your passion for, for those workers up there. Yeah, so that started, uh, shoot, I guess it was maybe a month ago. Um, my wife and I stumbled across the story of the the new era workers in the factory up in uh, Derby, New York, which is uh, right outside Buffalo. Yeah, she was actually googling our spring training hats. We have a new spring training hat. The design on it is is it's actually pretty cool. And um, she was she googled it to show a friend of hers online, and and um, 
a story popped up about New Era. Um, and basically what happened was, so New Era has a deal with Major League Baseball to make you know, all the hats. Yeah. For, and, and the deal stipulates that the hats that are worn by the Major League Baseball players on the field and the coaches, um, those hats have to be made in the United States. They've been made at this factory in Derby for for over for over fifty years, yeah. And they're these are union workers that get paid. They get paid living wages. They get they have benefits, and uh, I mean these people have been doing this in in this factory for you know for decades. Some of these workers have been there, and basically New Era said they're going to close that factory down. And these hats are going to start to be made at a at a plant at a factory in Florida by non-union workers. Um, it's a situation where it's not like they're creating new jobs like these jobs already. So they're they're going to you know workers in this factory that already have jobs, and you know obviously the the non-union aspect of it means that these workers don't have a say in what they make or the benefits that they get. So you know now you're talking about factory workers that really don't have representation and what's that what does that look like meanwhile these people that have worked in this factory in New York for you know for for a really long time they've developed the super specific skill set a lot of them have or have to deal with stuff like that they have issues with like fine motor skills you know just stuff that comes with working on a factory line right. for a long time um, stuff like carpal tunnel and um, stuff that is problems with their neck and shoulders from from being at a sewing machine or something like that for a really long time so it can be tough for them to, they can't just like fall into another job. Right. This is a super specific skill that they've developed. And it's hard I, to fall into a contract like that too. Right. Another one. Right. And I, I think, I, I don't know, it, it, it just didn't sit right. Um, they, so this deal went down in actually in uh, late November and we didn't find out about it until February. So we were late to the game. Meanwhile, you know, the deal that they signed, the deal that the workers had signed and, uh, with New Era had you know prevented them from organizing and speaking out publicly. So the teachers union up there was trying really hard to advocate on their behalf, and they mm -hmm. did some incredible work. Um, the AFL CIO up in Western New York did some really great work on their behalf. Um, so we were super late to the game, but there were people up there um, showing some incredible labor labor solidarity. Um, and we were Aaron and I when we found out about it, we really wanted to. There wasn't really much new that we could add to the conversation, but we wanted to use our platform to kind of elevate the work that people had been doing on their behalf for, for the last few months. And uh, it, it culminated with an op-ed in the Washington Post. And I just think when when we think about our game, and we've already talked about what this game has grown into. Yeah. Um, and there's all these, you know, there's all these new revenue streams in the game and financially the game is in a great place. It's booming. Like, but there's workers behind the scenes when it comes to the people that make our the people that make our uniforms, um, our hats, the workers at our stadiums, mm -hmm. and the people in the transportation industry that get people to our games, the vendors and concession workers and security guards and you know, even the police that work at our at our games. Like these are all members of unions. These are all people that do a lot of work behind the scenes that, you know, don't get a lot of credit, but without them, like our game doesn't exist in the way that, at least in the way that we know it. Right. Um, it, and it makes things work smoothly enough that we can, we can have a stadium full of 30, 40, 50,000 people. So I, I, it was, it was a situation where in, in doing that, we wanted to acknowledge also that 
we're super grateful for all these people that work behind the scenes for us that make our game like what it is today. So yeah. I don't know what's going to come of it. I don't know if we were able to move the needle at all. To be honest, we haven't heard anything. We haven't heard any new developments, but you know, so I, I don't know, but we do know the hats that we're going to wear this year on the field. were all made by those union workers in the, in the, they've already made all the hats for this season. Yeah. So I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what's going to come of it. Um, if anything, but, um, We'll, we'll definitely be, uh, you know, thinking about them every time we put our hat on. Yeah, I played in Buffalo, New York. Uh, yeah. It was AAA for the Mets when I was there. That's in, right. Um, 11, 12. And when we lived there, the person that we lived with, she was amazing. Her name Your was, host family. Yeah, it wasn't really a host family. It okay. was, <laughs> the way. once again, the way minor leagues work <laughs> is we somehow fell into this place where we were living in like a servant's quarters of some mansion in Buffalo that this lady was helping run. It was wild, but it was, you know, it, that's a whole different story. But the fact that we met this lady and got to know her and got to know her family and her story was that both of her parents had worked in this factory for years, wow. you know, dating back to the 50s and 60s. And she had hundreds and hundreds of hats of like old original hats, uh, on-field MLB hats since the oh, contract wow. started. And she was so proud of it. She was so proud of what the work that her parents had done and how their connection with Major League Baseball and with the players through those hats. And wow. when I saw the story, I was like, damn it. This is an integral part of the culture up there. Yeah. Not just of the general baseball culture, but very specifically to upstate New York, which has right. had its own share of hard times about mm -hmm. with, with pretty much every industry up there. Mm -hmm. um, but this had been one pretty consistent thing that had been up there for a long time. So to see it, you know, the possibility of it leaving and one more industry leaving and essentially baseball um, in a large way, leaving that part of the country is, it was hard. It was, it's a tough thing to see. And so I'm glad you spoke up about it. I'm hoping that something can be done about it, but who knows? Yeah. Like you said, it, it's really woven into the fabric of that community up there to use a, a garment industry pun, I suppose. But <laughs> um, they've been making, New Era has been making hats for Major League Baseball for the, the players to wear on the field since the 60s. In 1993, they got the exclusive deal to make all of the hats. I guess some teams um, were still outsourcing it to different companies before that, but um, you know, for, for for the last two or three decades, they've been up there making every hat that any player has worn on the field. Do you think I got through about five or six a year? They yeah. get real disgusting. See, I'm a guy. I I keep mine. Do you like to have it as gross as possible? Well, as a you know, as a reliever, I, I throw one inning at a time. Yeah. Ho hopefully, um, and if I'm out there for more than five minutes, like I I mess something up big time. So <laughs> so you know, my hats like relievers, most relievers like your hat doesn't get ours don't get as as gnarly as That's starters disgusting. do. You know, so like yeah. I, I'm able to I'm able to stick with one hat. Well, of course, we have like six or seven different kinds of <laughs> yeah, hats that we wear, combinations. color combinations yeah. and stuff now. But I'm able to get through the season with with the same hat. I like I get it just right. And sometimes when we have the you know we wear the the specialty uniforms for Mother's Day or Father's Day, we get a new hat, and those those never fit right. I don't know why they don't though. They don't. They're like more shallow, maybe. Yeah. All right, maybe maybe I just haven't broken it. Haven't had a chance to like break it in the same way, but. I like the way it fits and, and I'll ride with it for the whole year. Man, I, it's so many things were introduced to my life as a reliever last year. Yeah, you're back you're back in the in the I'm rotation. I'm back in the rotation now. for right now, yeah. <laughs> but my God, I you realized- were, You joined the dark side for a minute. Holy cow. There was a 
there was an entire world of baseball that I didn't really know existed. Yeah. Until I, I think every pitcher should have to spend a year in the bullpen. I'm glad to hear you say that. And and as a starter, I know that sometimes our guys kind of look at us like you know maybe we're complaining too much or something like that. But it's just it's a lot different, you know, when you're a reliever and you're on call all the time. And, and and it's as a starter, you know, guys, you guys very much have your routines, right? You're very you're very extremely routine, yeah. Right. Cuz you you have you know when you're going to pitch, so you know, your your four days between starts are you probably have a, a really good idea of what you're going to do every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that had to be an adjustment. It was an ex- I mean, it was a big adjustment. I'm already like a pretty routine person. Yeah, it's, it was. I'm already like methodical in the way I, I go about my business on the field. So the first few weeks, I felt like I was so lost down there. <laughs> I was like stretching the second inning every game, like getting ready. I'm like breaking a sweat by the fourth. <laughs> The other guys are down there looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? You're bro? making just, us all nervous. Just sit down. You're like, Verlander's throwing like a one hitter out there right now. Where are you, what are you doing? Have some like, confidence yeah, in your know. guys. <laughs> uh, and I got, I got more in the hang of it as the, as the year went on, but my God, it is, it is so different. And a 162 feels way different. 162 games feels different in the bullpen because you don't get mental off days really down there. I, I didn't even think about it like that, but you're right. You're, you're on call every day. Like, there are nights where, like, I I after a game, I I struggle with kind of bringing my energy level back down enough. Oh, yeah. to go to bed at like a reasonable hour after a night game. Um, and there's nights where like I might not have even pitched in that game, but maybe I was warming up to go in, mm-hmm. and so the you know the adrenaline was starting to flow, and you know it's one o'clock in the morning, you know two o'clock, and I'm staring at the ceiling. I didn't even pitch in that game. <laughs> um, so like managing that, managing that energy level, you try to have a routine every day. You try to prepare your body the same way every day, but it presents its own set of challenges. Yeah. I mean, starters, when the first pitch is thrown, if you're not pitching that day, if you're not starting that day, it's like mentally shut it down. Right. And you can't do that, especially as a late inning guy like you, like you can't, right. you can't do that until 27th out. Right. You, you also can't, you can't really like check in until maybe like the the fifth or the sixth inning. Like you're you're very aware of what's going on in the game uh-huh. and you're keeping tabs on it. You're watching every pitch and stuff. But like if you're like emotionally invested in the in the game from like the first pitch, like you'll burn yourself out. That's what I was doing. I was so like so exhausted. It's so like it's this weird like it's this weird balance that you have to be able to strike where like, yeah, you're, you're, you're there, but like you can, you can flip that switch at any second Mm -hmm. and like, you know, get it going. And I remember like, it's, it's very much like an acquired skill. Like when I got called up, I was, I was a guy that would, they would say like, Hey, you have like the, you know, be ready for the fourth hitter next inning. And I would just pick up the ball and just start like throwing. And I would throw like until they put me in the game. And they were like, you have to, you have to, you have to calm down. Like you have to stop doing that because you're not going to have any, anything left by the time you go out into the game. Um, so like managing that energy level and knowing how many pitches you need to get ready without throwing too much in the bullpen. But like, you know, what happens if the other team makes a couple pitching changes or you guys have a rally? Like, I love I, I I love being a reliever. Be, yeah, I love the adrenaline rush of of coming into the game and jogging out onto the field or riding in a bullpen cart. Hell yeah, <laughs> we're both there. Yeah. I love it. So I mean, it's a super. It can be a super stressful 
uh, lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's wild. I was doing the same thing. I like would get to the end of the game and couldn't go to sleep at the end of the night. Right. And I was like, I never had that problem as a starter. Like, right. Game was over. I could get home. Yeah. Head hits the pillow. I'm done. Right. But yeah, the, the, like coming down from the adrenaline of, even if I knew I am not in this game. Right. We're, it's like a three run game. I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm not into the, into the bullpen guy. We've got those, those guys ready for their, it doesn't matter. I was like having to watch and I was like, oh, but if, what if? Right. What if you we do, you, two guys get on? Someone gets a yeah. homer. Oh my phone gosh. rings. Two outs. Got to get up. Can't let your guard down. It has to happen one time too. Oh Just one gosh. time to get That's that. That's the like, worst feeling in the world where you're like, I'm oh. looking. You know, you're looking at the scoreboard and you're like. No, the bo- the boys got this. Like uh, everything's gonna be fine. <laughs> or like, ah, it's just not our night tonight, you know. And then next thing you know, like, there's like a rally going, and, and you're like, I don't want to move because like this is a lucky spot, and everybody's doing, you know, we're. And then like the phone rings, and they're like, hey, like if we score one more run, like you're in, and and it's like that feeling for me of not being ready is like, oh my gosh, it's the worst. So it's terrifying. So yeah. no matter what the score is, most nights like starting in the sixth inning, like I have stuff that I do, like a routine and, you know, so that every night, no matter what, like by the eighth inning, like if I need to, if the phone rings, uh, I'm ready to go. So, I mean, and I say all this knowing that if I work like maybe three or four times a week, like that was a busy week. That's a busy week. Yeah. Maybe like I played, for, you know, I got to play like three half innings in one week. And that's kind of like a lot. If I pitched in three out of seven, four out of seven, like that's a pretty, pretty busy week. And meanwhile, there's guys that are out there playing nine innings, all seven of those games. And I have no idea how they do it. No clue. Like they're heroes to me, every single one of them. <laughs> like they are my, they are my absolute heroes because like I go out there, there's nights I go out there and I'm, you know, they're throwing the ball around after uh, I finish my warm up pitches and I'm looking at them and their uniforms are caked in dirt. You know, they're like, they're sweating they're in the jungle and you know we got like a one run lead and i'm like i gotta do it for the boys they've been grinding for (laughs) the past like they haven't had an off day in like 12 days you know i haven't pitched in like three nights so like i'm good (laughs) i'm good (laughs) they've been they've been doing it you know like i don't know how they do it it could have been you yeah my body wasn't gonna let me do that (laughs) man. man as much as i i miss the opportunity to like you know get a shot to play every day yeah you know, I, I'm very aware that my, my body just wasn't going to let me do it. Um, I don't, yeah, it's, it's crazy to me that any of them can do it. Like George Springer's played 155 plus games two years in a row. And I'm like, what? How in the universe could you possibly do that? And he's playing outfield. Yeah. So he's running around all the time. It's not like he's like stationary. He's even, hitting leadoff. Like, he's getting four bats a game at least. I mean, he's really fast. Yeah. So it's not like he's just like, at least he doesn't have that hill to deal with out there anymore. But Thank I mean, God. still. I mean, I selfishly, I've give, I gave up three balls that were caught on the hill before it before it was taken out. Jeez, I missed the hill. <laughs> <laughs> bring back, bring need, back the hill. Bring back the hill. <laughs> <laughs> Move the fences back. There was a flagpole on the That's field right. though, which was a little bit. That's right. To me, was a little weird. Yeah, we never I, got one off the foul pole, but I always thought seems dangerous yeah it's at the top of a hill like i don't know that's like some really really old school baseball where there's like obstacles in play yeah Maybe. astros love doing that shit they've been doing it since the astrodome they're like <laughs> what can how can we make this game weirder yeah let's do it uh put the fence 290 feet away <laughs> make it closer <laughs> got it a model train but bigger <laughs> yes filled with fruit perfect 
Also, it's lost on a lot of people that it was called Enron Field. It is. Minutes before the, before the Enron thing Tough happened. Tough timing, yeah. Yeah, they really screwed that one up. That's right. What, only for one year? Not even a year, I don't think. Oh, okay. So it was like, it was brief. And then they changed it to something generic for a little bit until Minute Maid was like, ah, we'll take those, the naming rights to this for the next zillion years. And throw some oranges in the train. Right. Throw a big juice box out in right field. We'll That's be good. right. Yeah, I... I love Minute Maid Park. It's been fun to play there, mostly because I forget that you have to be outside all the time at other places. Oh, it's yeah, it's in DC. Um, it is so hot. It's so and it's so hot and humid. And we dealt with a lot of rain last year too. Yeah, another um, thing. So a, a retractable roof really would have come in handy. Mm-hmm. You know, the the humidity and the heat in the summer. It's easy to get loose, I guess, but like. Man, like we were just talking, like uh, there's times where like I'm on my twelfth pitch and like I'm 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 gassed. It just zaps your energy. Yeah, you're thinking, can I get an IV after this game? Is Goodness that possible? Gracious, like I'm <laughs> you know I'm, I'm soaked through my uniform after pitching one inning. And as a visiting player, I had a I had a super kind of love hate relationship with Minute Maid. And a lot of it had to do with the visiting bullpen. The dungeon? Be, yeah, being tucked underneath that the the outfield wall back there. And part of it was because the um if I was standing up, I couldn't see anything in the field because the there's a, a bar that goes across that chain link fence out there that is between the pillars. And the there's a pad on the outside of it so that, you know, in the field of play, like nobody uh, runs into it or whatever. But it blocks your vision. So if you're if you're from like 5'10 to like 6'4, like you can't see anything on the field. <laughs> you know, your other option is to climb up. There's like a wooden tiered bench. It's kind of like stadium seating. And I would climb up to the top and, and so I could sit. And you're sitting maybe like five or six feet off the ground and it's super comfortable, but it's tough to get up and climb down when you have to like start getting ready. Like if you have to go quick, like... Uh, for me, it was like being, you know, at the top of a treehouse or something, and I had to like jump down to Stay get ready. Down, yeah. yeah, so be, you start going stir crazy down there because you can't. All the sounds are super muffled, mm-hmm. like on of the game, like the PA announcer and the music, and you know, even like the the sounds of the game. It's and then and then you know you warm up and you feel amazing because you're throwing in this enclosed space. So the the pop of the glove, it's so loud, and then. You come out onto the field to throw and like that sound's not there anymore, you know? And, and it's like, oh no, like I left it in the bullpen. I left my fastball in the bullpen. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And, you know, the, the it sometimes it feels like you're throwing from like the mound is like 70 feet away because oh, the God. visual in the inside, it's you feel super close. Uh-huh. Um, plus, you know, and then you have to deal with like Altuve and Bregman and Correa and like all the guys on your team. And I was just, uh, I always had like, you know, at the same time, it's a it's a beautiful stadium, and it, yeah. it looks like an incredible fan experience. Uh, and it gets loud in there, man. It does. It does. It they really, clo- when they close the roof and it's, it's packed, it does. It gets real loud. And even and like at, when you're out on the field, I don't know if you notice this because maybe you're used to it, but the crack of the bat sounds so loud, mm-hmm. no matter what. Yeah. Like a guy could hit like a four hopper to shortstop, and like I'll flinch. You flinch a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, oh god. Um, Sounds like an old timey uh, like radio broadcaster like clapping in the booth. <laughs> He's got the wooden sticks in the booth <laughs> that he like hits next to the microphone. <laughs> but um, this is when you you came up with Oakland, yeah. right? So it's the Coliseum is its own different its own beast in, in a lot of different ways. But I feel like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like 
players who play in Oakland, if you've had some success there, you somehow like learn to embody what Oakland is all about and what yeah. the A's are about. I don't know what it is. <laughs> you can like tell an A's player from a mile away. That's funny that you say that because the guys that have been able to find like some success there, you know, it, it it's a unique place to play. And mm-hmm. it, and and for me, that was I came up with them, so I didn't have like as I was playing there and I, I got to the big leagues, like I didn't I didn't have a, another perspective. I didn't have anything to compare it to. And some guys that came over um, went through a definite adjustment period, but the guys that are able to find success there, like you know the the fans they completely embrace them and you totally buy into this. You have like this chip on your shoulder, like you have something to prove because, you know, around the league, the media around the league, like you don't get a lot of attention playing for the A's. And, right. you know, you have to be okay with that while also being able to kind of like use it as motivation. Did the money ball, the money ball thing kind of played into that too? It was like the idea in the national media that, I don't want to say like the team was cheap, but the team was like on the cutting edge of, trying to find that competitive advantage for right. maybe not what the Yankees are going to spend on a team. Right. And, and, and you, as a player, like you knew that, like you knew you were very aware of just the way that they run the team. Like that's the way that they chose to run the team. I'm incredibly grateful for my time with the A's. They, I, I can't say enough good things about the people in that organization. They took such good care of me and gave me the opportunity to, you know, revamp my career as a pitcher and, and and to help me through that whole process. Um, but they're, they're, they're constantly thinking outside the box and, and trying to maximize like the efficiency of their roster and stuff like that. And, you know, for a few years, like this was a while ago, people forget in 2012, 13 and 14, like the A's, we were one of the best teams of baseball. They were really good. Yeah. And yeah. That, that was, that was really fun. And, um, you know, last year it was cool to to kind of follow. I still have a lot of friends over there, and and it was cool to follow their their season last year. They were one of the cool stories in baseball, and they were tough. They were really tough. Yeah, I mean, their bullpen especially Oof. looked incredible. And and you know they they got a core group of young guys now that right. that have uh, they were still in the minor leagues when I was there, but you could tell like these guys have a chance to to be really special and. Watching guys like Matt Chapman and and Matt Olson kind of come into their own last year was was really cool to to see. And again, for me, have being able to watch across the country in a different division and a different league, like I was able to, I was like, wow, that that is really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm super grateful for my time there. I loved pitching in the Coliseum because it's such a pitcher friendly park. Yeah. Uh, so when it gets a little cold, a little it damp does. at it night, does, man, you need your sweatshirt and your jacket down there and those bullpens. I feel sometimes like a little bit of a sissy because I'm down there and I, I play in, you know, 72, 73 degree <laughs> uh, climate controlled stadium. And I go there and it's the middle of the summer and I'm putting on, yeah, sweatshirt, jacket, gloves. Got to work smart though. Like you, you got to like, and we would get, you know, there's a, there's a space heater down there. I don't know if you guys, we would get that going. The space like, heater would be going. There would be uh, the fans are right on top of you, right? Because right. it's an outdoor outdoor bullpen. You're just right. sitting in that little tunnel, which weirdly smells like pee on our side. I don't know if you've noticed it, but like on our side, I don't know why. I don't know if it's like the football season <laughs> stuff or whatever is happening. But we're down there. We're like, does nobody else smell this? And we're talking to the fans. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> well, well, it. Your bench that you're sitting on, that's a gutter. Like yeah, that's under there. Like that that's makes a, sense. Some then. sort of drainage situation. And I mean, that was the stadium, it, it had its own 
plumbing issues uh, when I was there uh, more than once, but uh, I think they've cleaned it up. But I would love to see them get a new park. The city of Oakland, I think, would be it sounds like a fantastic place. It sounds to, like to they're going to, but yeah. you know, then again, like uh, when I when I got drafted, there were artist renderings that they showed us for the new park that was going to go down in in Fremont, which mm-hmm. is South Bay, like by San Jose. So right. I, for for a really long time now, they've been talking about it and. That fan base is like, you know, kind of cautiously optimistic, I think. But uh, you talk about a, a, a passionate fan base. Um, I think it would be, you know, good for, for the game and, and, and for those fans if, you know, they, they got a place that was really their own. You know, they've been sharing with the Raiders for so long. And now that the Raiders are leaving, it would be nice to, you know, help them out and get something yeah, I think so too. And you've, you've spent enough time up in the community up there in Oakland and the, the Bay Area community that... Um, I'm sure you still have, it still carries like a pretty yeah. warm place in your heart. Yeah, we were there for six years. You know, I was with the organization for 10 years. You know, I, I grew up in that organization. I was drafted when I was by them when I was 20 years old. So played with the organization for 10 years. So I knew, you know, and, and being in the minor leagues for such a big chunk of that, like I got to know everybody top to bottom in that organization, the security guards at the stadium and stuff like that. And, you know, the people in and around that community. So yeah, there's, there's always going to be kind of a special place uh, for my wife and I, for the Bay area, especially the East Bay and Oakland. So yeah, yeah, it would be great to see. I'm interested in this because you are, you're pretty outspoken publicly uh, in, in whether your political views or whether it's the foundations and stuff that you support mm-hmm. and the causes that you support. I'm interested, did being in Oakland and being around that community influence the way you, the way your, your ideas were formed around these things? Totally. I think, um, I think a lot of it too was the A's organization themselves being, you know, supportive of that and, and giving Aaron and I, not just the space to like use our platform, but also like to actively you know help us uh, with some of the stuff that we that we got involved in. So I think it was it was both the people in the community and, and having the support from the fans and stuff like that and, and having it, you know, not universally well received, but at least like received, you know, well enough that we had support from the, the, the people in the community, but also the organization. You know, it, it we realized early on that we were able to get involved in some stuff and and maybe make an impact. And I've been lucky that both the organizations that I've been in, the nationals are they're incredible with, with with some of the stuff that they've helped my wife and I do and get involved in. They have they have incredible ties to the community in DC and 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 Northern Virginia and Maryland. And so I, I've been incredibly lucky that the two organizations that I've played in not only have been tolerant of you know me speaking out and weighing in on some of these issues, but also actively helping with some right. of that. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I first time I really had seen you speak out about anything. It was about the LGBT, LGBTQ community. Yeah. I think it was a LGBTQ night in, yeah. in Oakland. Yeah, their pride night. And how y'all were able to, uh, to buy tickets and to disperse it and basically make it a community, community outreach thing, but also um, include people who have, in general, kind of been excluded in baseball for a long time. Right. Um, and I think that, that it's always going to raise questions. It's always going to have some opinion about something. But I remember right. looking at it thinking... This it seems long overdue, and it seems it seems like a like a no brainer to me. Yeah, like what is what's the deal? But there's always people on the internet. There's always right. trolls or people on both sides of the issue, and I'm always impressed by the way you're able to 
toe that line and be respectful, <laughs> but firm in your stance with, with people, especially on the internet, which is so hard to do. How, how do you do it? The drafts folder gets a lot of, gets a lot of work because there's a lot of times where like, I'll write something almost in like the heat of the moment and I'll save it to my drafts folder and, and, um, maybe I'll do, do a little bit more research. I'll, I'll try to pull up some articles or, um, I'll talk to my wife a little bit and, or, or proofread it and go through it. Or maybe I'll just leave it for a little while. And I'll say like, if it's, if this is still like a, something worth talking about, maybe I'll, I'll weigh in on it tomorrow or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, the timing of it goes into it too. I don't want to put something out before a game and, you know, kind of like roll a grenade into the room and leave. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I want to be able to like, put something out there and then be able to engage with the responses that it might get. Yeah. But, Which is its own its own little bit of bravery too. Yeah, you gotta yeah. you really have to pick and choose, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't you can't respond to everybody. A lot of times like I'll click on the then go to their profile and see like is this a person like I can engage in you know, a good faith argument with or are they gonna move the goalposts on me every time like I I might try I'll try to like meet them where they are, but like not everybody's going to be willing to agree with you and that's okay but like i think part of what we've been able to do is like maybe frame um certain issues like like the lgbtq issues that we've we've gotten involved in my wife's now on the board of of an organization called smile in in dc and they do some incredible stuff for the lgbtq community in in dc and partner with them for pride night last year and and we're going to do so again next year and and we're in the planning stages of that right now but you know we i see baseball kind of as this in sports in general kind of as this common denominator right like there's people from all these different uh walks of life people with different life experiences different orientations and backgrounds and they're all in the stadium together they might not even know it in the right. stadium on on a given night they and uh that's kind of the wonderful thing about baseball they're right? rooting for yeah and they're rooting for the team uh, a, a team on the field which has guys from how many different countries and and how many different parts of the world and you know that's its own unique subset uh and uh diverse group but but i you know i've come to realize as i've been in the league like Base, whether it's coverage in the media um, or stuff that happens in and around the game, like fans experience, everyone's fans fan experience might not be the same as mine or you know someone else's. Um, and and I want people to be able to enjoy this game no matter who they are. And I love baseball. I I love <laughs> the game itself. Is it's a beautiful thing. And, and I want people to be able to feel welcome at a stadium. I want people yeah. to be able to feel like they can be a part of this baseball community and have their voice heard on social media and not just get shouted down or dismissed out of hand. I want to lead those conversations and and, and be involved in, in, in growing the game and, and, and reaching out into some of these communities that have been kind of marginalized when it comes to sports. Yeah, I, I agree. And like you said, that the diversity in a park in any major league park on any given night is insane. And I think right. the the old time attitude of baseball's a traditional game played by traditional people in this traditional way. And like the embrace of that traditionalism is not that's that's not where we are in 2019. Right. That's not the communities that we're playing in. That's not the cities that we're playing in. That's not the teams we're playing in. Chances are it's not the players that are on the field playing. Right. right. And that's a whole that's a whole different subject about the idea <laughs> right. of being inclusive of of all communities in the clubhouse and and genders, men yeah. and women both, and uh, I, I think that baseball still has a long way to go on that. But yeah. 
being able to touch on that, at least in some way, I think brings it brings more of what baseball wants, which is yeah, baseball wants to be inclusive. It wants to be America's pastime, and America is a very diverse place. If we're going to continue to grow the game and, and move the game forward and attract new fans, we're going to need to have uh, those people feel like they can be a part of the conversation. People from these marginalized communities, like their voices are important to their perspectives are important to the way that we're going to grow the game. And I think there's, there's starting to be, I think it's kind of been tied in with some labor conversations that we've had. But as, as we look at players today and, and the way that some players do a great job of connecting with fans, you know, that's, that's a way that like we can grow the game. Like there's some amazing personalities across the game, some unique and, and fun to watch. I mean, objectively, even as like a, a rival competitor, like there's guys in this league that I just like love to watch. Oh yeah. And actually you guys in your clubhouse, you have your, and obviously you're one of them obviously doing this podcast, which is such a cool project. But like, you know, Bregman's got a YouTube channel. Yep. You, you guys are on, on on Twitch, like playing video games with each other, and you know, using social media in a way that's, yeah, it is it is a way it is a form of self promotion, but it's also a way of like connecting with fans, mm-hmm. and it's for for players to take their marketability into their own hands and and show that like they have value, like not just as a member of the Houston Astros or a Major League Baseball player, but like. As Colin McHugh, like you know, he has a podcast, and yeah. and like to be able to like have these kind of ways that you can grow the game, like I think that's it's so cool, and it's it's so good for like as we continue to look to expand and move things forward. It's I think it's awesome. Self promotion has been kind of been framed as a bad thing in baseball for right. a long time. Right, like, you're no one person is bigger than the game. No one person needs to be standing out, but it runs counterintuitive to what our history is, which is there have been singular players throughout our entire game who like become legends and become icons and self-promotion is not a bad thing. No. Self-promotion is important because like baseball in and of itself, you can lose people in there pretty quickly. Like you can, right. we're all wearing the same uniforms. There's totally, you know, nine of us, 10 of us on the field at any given time. And we play 162 games. It's a long season. Yeah. And there's way more to each and each and every one of us than, just what we do for the half inning that you right. play three times a week. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's and it and it goes all the way to the way that you're supposed to behave during a game. Oh where yeah. Like if you hit a home run, like no, put your head down and jog around the bases. Yep. Like if you get a big out, walk off the mound. Like <laughs> yeah. And it's like no, like I think we. I think part of this needs to be like a reframing of what it means to respect the game. Like I think you can respect the game by showing how much fun you have playing it. Yeah, I think I you can respect the game by bringing like a passion and a flair to the game. That energy. I, I think it's okay. Like if a guy hits a home run and like flips his bat or watches it for a little bit. Like I think that's okay. I think after. A guy makes a play in the field, like he gets up and he's like smiling and laughing with his teammates. Like that's awesome. Like people yeah. connect with that, but it's also like, oh, good, this guy is not a baseball robot, and he's like showing some personality <laughs> that, like, I think is really cool to see. It's, it makes it an inclusive game. It makes it something relatable to to the average person, probably. I have friends who who aren't from the country; they'd never seen a baseball game before, and they came to a baseball game and they saw Bregman hit a homer, and like 
they were raving the fact that he came around third base and like jumped and had like a high five oh, yeah. with our third base coach. Yeah. They were like, that was crazy. I can't believe he did that. <laughs> like that was the one thing they took away from a baseball game. And I'm like, that's wow. Like that is what people are looking for. They're looking for engagement. They're looking for, like Bryce said, want to make baseball fun, like yeah. have fun with it. Yeah. It's such a long season and it's such a, this is such an incredible opportunity that we have. I think we lose sight of this sometimes that we have to play this game. Like, on a given night at Minute Maid Park or Nats Park, like there's going to be more people in the stands watching the game than have ever played in the major leagues. Like, what is it? Like twenty five, maybe thirty thousand guys yeah, ever in the history ever of major played leagues. in the yeah. league before. And so, like, there's a lot of nights where there's more people in the stands than have ever put on a major league uniform. And you said it. You know, it's a 162 game season. It's a grind. It takes up your off seasons. You're working out. You know, you spring training and. It, it's such a cool opportunity that you have to do this. Like, it's okay if like you get pumped up after yeah. like you hit like a big home run or, or get a big strikeout. Like, I think that's awesome. And I don't know, like maybe my perspective's different. Maybe, you, you know, almost not making it. You know, I was very close to going back to school and, and, and hanging it up. Maybe, so I don't know if I have a different perspective, but I think, you know, guys should be able to, you know, have fun and, and, and enjoy, enjoy the game and, and wear their emotions on their sleeve. Yeah. For one moment, one night, you know, a fan wants to believe that they're just like you. They're just like that person out on the field. Right. Yeah. Which in 99% of the ways they are, like we are totally normal dudes, Yeah. you know, hanging out, just having a good time, happen to be really good at one specific thing. Thank God it's what it, thank God it's pitching because I don't really have anything else. No, yeah, like I, I, I'm really, I always tell like, tell people I'm, I'm the least talented person in my family. Like I have three brothers and sisters and they're all way more talented than me. I just happen to be good at this one and a wife who's way more talented at 90% of things than I am. My wife, I'm the same way at home. I'm, my wife is very much the better half and She's, we were talking before, like she, I'm, I'm so proud of everything that she's doing. She's working on her second master's right now and she's set to graduate in May and I can't wait to see like what she does next. But I, like I, like I said before too, like if I work like three nights a week, like, you know, I had a busy week. That's a good, that's a good week. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, I, I got, I got lucky. Like I really did. Like I, I work really hard to like try and maximize this opportunity and, and milk everything out of it. And, and that's part of the reason that we do stuff in the community because like I'm very aware of the, the small platform that we have. And, and we, I feel like, at least for me, like that's a part of this experience that I want to, I want to capitalize on. And, and so we, we, we try to do some stuff and off the field as well, but I'm just happy to be here. Just happy to be here. <laughs> just, just glad to be here. And I feel like you do a good job of talking to people when the conversation starts to turn to, what players' salaries are, or mm-hmm. what you know, and this whole labor conversation that we've been having over the last year or so, it most times comes back to players are spoiled, players are rich. It doesn't matter your what you're playing a kid's game. You should just be happy to be here. You should be happy doing your job. And it's a touchy subject because there are, yes, we are making an incredible living. If right. you get the chance to do this, if you get a chance to play Major League Baseball for one day, yeah, it's the salary is great, right. even at a, even at a, a minimum level, but there's way more nuance to the conversation than just that. And I, it, it frustrates me when the conversation stops there. Right. And so you, I've seen you be able to take that conversation and move it forward, move it a little bit past just, yeah, I know that you can look up, you can Google my name and my salary is going to pop up next right. to my name. Which is a weird thing too. It's an extremely like, weird thing. Like 
that transparency, because inevitably every time I have a conversation about labor issues on social media, more than one person in, in, the, in my mentions will like screenshot my salary. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing really well. Like I'm lucky to do what I do, but uh, you know, we're also, we also are, we are very much the product in this, uh, in this massive booming industry and the value that, you know, we are collectively bringing. We just want to see, you know, that reflected. And I, I think in, in, in continuing to have this conversation, it's important to acknowledge that yes, the money that we like, there are guys with multiple commas in their salary. Oh yeah, and and no, we're not crying poor by any means. And I think as we continue to have this conversation, we have to also acknowledge that this is happening in a lot of other industries in the country. We we just saw how many teacher strikes um, yep. in the past couple months. The government workers. I mean, that wasn't a strike, but like we watched. Um, ultimately, what brought an end to it was the solidarity between transportation workers and airport workers. You know, coming together and and uh, a credible strike threat that it was essentially ground the country to a screeching halt. But acknowledging that this is it's just, it's happening on a different scale, and it, but it, this is happening in. A lot of different people mm -hmm. are working harder, longer, multiple jobs for less of a slice of the pie. And I, I think as we continue to have these discussions, you know, the, the finances make it, you know, that part of it a touchy subject. Mm -hmm. um, but I think too, like it's all wrapped up in this idea that like, we just want we want the league to be more competitive. We want right. teams to be more active and in, in signing players and 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 we think ultimately that'll be better for the game. If you have more teams competing for World Series on a yearly basis and more teams trying to put forward the best uh, product on the field, we think that'll be that'll be good for fan bases, you know, it'll be it'll create a better fan experience. So the money like it, it can, you know, leave people with sticker shock. And uh, that's completely understandable. I'm, I, I totally get it. I mean, Mike Trout today, yeah. as, as we're you know, sitting here talking, uh, I don't know when this will air, but this is the day that Mike Trout signed a 400 and what was it? 430? 430, yeah. Sheesh. So, I mean. There's money going around and I don't think anybody is, anybody, nobody's denying the fact that there's a lot of money at stake here right. in Major League Baseball. What is a it is doing an industry, an industry that is doing really, really well. Right. But like any other industry in this country, and especially any other unionized industry, there is a constant tension between between owners and workers. Right. There's always going to be, and that has been for for a long, long time. And I think seeing solidarity, solidarity between industries. Yeah. Um, we've been able to see a lot of a lot of breakthrough and a lot of rights for workers uh, being held up, which is is a big deal. It's a big yeah. deal for for workers in this country, and yeah. it's hard to consider. My, it's it's humbling but also hard to consider myself one of those union workers at times right because the inequity is i mean it's pretty stark between yes. what i make and what a teacher makes right but what we stand for is especially uh, when is, you can argue that like the impact that a teacher has well, yeah i mean it's i mean in many ways it's not even not even remotely close right we have we happen to, <laughs> we happen to play a game like, a couple nights a week right and so i think like as we as we continue to have labor discussions like i think it's important that like if there are if there's a teacher strike in a community that you play in, or mm -hmm. I think we we need to make sure that we show that kind of solidarity, that we're aware of what 
fans that are coming to our games are going through mm-hmm. and what I think it's important to not just acknowledge that, but like try to learn about it and understand that so that we can, when it comes to labor issues, we can speak like really responsibly on mm-hmm. them. Being able to relate is a, is a big deal. And I think that there's probably not a lot of, not a lot of people on both sides in this league that take a step back for mm-hmm. a minute and say like, how do we, how does this relate? How do we relate to the greater, the greater picture here, what's happening in the country? And we've talked a lot about, about inclusiveness and about um, being able to include different communities. But whenever you speak politically, there's going to be a, at least a 50-50 chance that you're going to exclude half the people you're talking to. Right. And so how do you, how do you balance that? How do you balance when you have an opinion politically about saying, am I willing to put this out there? Am I willing to speak my mind about this knowing that there's a chance that you're going to piss off half of the people that you're going to be talking to? What I try to do is I try to make sure that whenever I speak about anything that is considered, you know, remotely political, politics has kind of infiltrated so much of our conversations and the discourse on social media that sometimes it can be tough to like have a conversation without it somehow touching or incorporating politics. So I think it's about like really like doing your homework to be able to speak on something like thoroughly and responsibly while not, you know, speaking in kind of this clickbaity headline jargon that, you know, relies on like shock value, but like trying to get some nuance in there. And I think a lot of times that's why people are probably sick of me because like on Twitter, a lot of my tweets are threaded, like all, it'll be two, three, four, because like, I know that in 280 characters, like I might not be able to get like the nuance and the context that like I want to get to talk about whatever it is I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So like it ends up turning into like a tweet thread and people probably muted me, whatever. Like I (laughs) I totally get it. But like, I I don't want something I'm as, as willing as I am to speak on stuff. Like I'm also like really scared that stuff I say is going to get taken out of context. So like I, you know, maybe sometimes I overdo it, but I I really believe that at the end of the day that I hope that people can maybe uh, respect where I'm coming from because like I'm able to, speak about it in a way that's informed and I don't know, like I'm willing to engage with people. I'm willing to hear what they have to say and, and I'm constantly trying to learn and and expand. So I have, I I might have these strong opinions, but like I'm willing to allow them to evolve and Mm -hmm. adapt as I continue to learn and and hear from other people and, and gain these new perspectives. So I think it's about like having, what do they say? Like have strong opinions that are loosely held, I guess. Yeah. You know, so you, so you don't, you never totally want to paint yourself into a corner. Which is easy to do these days because everything is right. so polarized usually on, on one side or the other. Right. My favorite, my favorite quote of the last two years that I've felt good using is, I'm willing to be wrong on this. <laughs> and then same, you know, speak my, speak my piece. But like, I am, I am willing to be proved wrong on this. I think going into whatever I'm having an opinion about with an open mind automatically leads the conversation into a more civil discourse. Yeah, totally. It's, it's just easy to it's easy to turn off people when you're coming at like you're saying you're coming at something from such a narrow, very right. specific point of view. Right, and I th- I think that's that's the key to it. Right, is like, <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of it's starting to have jumped the shark, but it's like 
there's people on social media like change my mind. Yeah. You like, you know, show me the lie. Like, right. you know, like you have these. So it's like, yeah, like this is where I'm at on this, but like I'm willing to hear where you're at. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is like you, you do have to pick and choose who you're going to engage with and stuff. Right. And, and make sure that it's not like a conspiracy theorist or, you know, <laughs> you're like, I don't know. It's, it's such a slippery slope now. A bot. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the next thing you know, you're. You're arguing with like Astros. It says like Astros fan six seven five four nine eight six five, and you're like, I don't think this is real. <laughs> Did I just put his phone number? In his name? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's. We've got a few questions that we like to ask at the end okay. of uh, of podcasts. A couple specific to you, a couple in general. All right. You're a big Star Wars fan. Yeah. What is your favorite Star Wars movie, and why? I think Empire Strikes Back is my favorite. I, to be honest, I I don't exactly know why, um, which is kind of like the answer that I give, like when people are like, why do you like Star Wars so much? And I'm like, I don't know. Like I just do, like I connected <laughs> with it at a young age and uh, I was always captured by the the creativity of the the sets and the design and the story and everything like that. And But I think when it comes to Empire Strikes Back, it's probably like the, you know, the fight scenes and the, it's probably one of the best sequels of all time. Easily, like, yeah. Usually, like the second movie of a trilogy is can be like, eh, you know. But and, and I went back and looked because when the Last Jedi came out, that would have been like two years. Well, I guess a year and a half ago at this point. Like people got really mad at it. <laughs> <laughs> like they got really mad at a movie, and. Like I went back and like it turns out like people were also super mad at Return of the Jedi. Oh, uh, or I'm sorry, at Empire, Empire Strikes Back because of the way that it like by the end of it like doesn't look good for the Rebel Alliance and like maybe that's our when when we're all grown up we'll look at it we'll look back on it the same way. But uh, I really don't know why that one I I gravitated to that one. I I'm also not like as anti prequel as like a lot of people are right I, because i you're think you're a big jar jar binks fan <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you know anything about me um but i think like because we were we were kind of like the age when those movies came out and george lucas has said since like he he did kind of create them for kids yeah and if that's what he was going for like i think he nailed it like it was super colorful and like relied really heavily on animation and CGI. I was all in on them. I when when they came out, I was like 12 depending on I think I was 12 cuz it came out in the summer, I think, and and I was all in. Like yeah. these were the coolest things I've ever seen and so I'm not as down on them as my obviously my perspective's changed as I've gotten older, but right. like for me I think like being a fan of something, especially when it comes to something as silly as movies means like just enjoying them for what they are and whether or not like the next movie aligns with like my fan fiction that I've written in, <laughs> in, in my basement or not like like it doesn't have to like they don't have to go out of their way to like make the storyline fit what you think it's supposed to be about like just enjoy it for what it is and like let your guard down and just go with it yeah in the last jedi people were mad that there was a scene with Princess Leia, or I don't want to give everybody if you knows it's on Netflix. Everybody knows what it. I'm talking about yeah. with, with Leia and the la, the and, and people were mad about that. And yeah. I was like, listen, guys, 
let me tell you something about Star Wars. There's laser swords. There's magic, like the force. There's like ancient green wizard that's like running around <laughs> outer space. Like this is very much within the realm of possibility for the Star Wars universe. Like it's okay. Yeah. It's going to be fine. You're picking a weird battle, a weird hill to die on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you're going to draw the line. Uh, <laughs> this is where you're going to draw the line. Not at the uh, seven foot tall walking carpet <laughs> that speaks like a weird language that only one guy can understand. Yeah. Why is he, why can he understand it? There's so many yeah. plot holes, right? Not necessarily plot holes, but like just things like there's a beepy robot kind of looks like a trash can that like can communicate with people, but like he's super smart, but he can't like speak, do anything. Yeah. He just kind of like ro- roves around and like beeps at people um, it's funny because my three-year-old now he loves BB-8, like the new droid in in the new Star Wars. And so, how I felt about R2D2 and C-3PO, okay. he's like, yeah, he's like, I want the toys. I want to, yeah. I want you to draw him. I want you to like, you pretend to be him. I'll pretend to like he is. That's awesome. And I'm like, he doesn't talk. He has no words. He has no lines. Does he have the remote control thing? Um, I had a remote control BB-8 that was really cool, and I used to drive my dogs crazy with it. Uh, <laughs> but that's the cool. other cool thing is now, like, the technology for the toys. You that, feel like, like you can really own them, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty It's it's pretty sick. We're going to have to, now that I've introduced it, we're going to have to start looking into these things because he's going to start asking questions. That's awesome, though. Yeah, no, that's I'm, really I'm cool. Excited. I mean, that was like that was like something that like I shared like with w- with my brother and my dad when I was a kid, and uh, I think it's really cool that like people that are our age that you know we were introduced to we had the prequels when we grew up, but like that was very much something that like people our age were able to share at home like with their parents or whatever, and now like with the new movies coming out, like it's there's three generations. Yeah, it's now, really cool. Yeah. Like, and, and I know, like, I was kind of worried when Disney bought Lucasfilm that now there's going to be a movie every year and it's going to get watered down. But, like, I think, I don't know, like, I've enjoyed everything that they've done. And uh, I know that they took some chances with uh, The Last Jedi. Solo was, it was kind of like a fun movie. I mean, it was what it was. It wasn't like anything groundbreaking. No. I really liked Rogue One. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, but, like, I don't know. I, I've enjoyed it. It's been fun. You wear glasses, and I've taught. I've tried to tell, or tried to ask guys, yeah. everybody on my team who wears glasses or contacts. I am so interested to know. Also, you wear the Oakleys on the field, right? Yeah, I do. Were you a kid who wore rec specs growing up? I was not. Um, I'm super late to the glasses game. <laughs> I was. I think I was in denial because I didn't get glasses until I was. 29. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Super late. Yeah. Super late. So like. And I, and I tried contacts, and I, I really just didn't like them. They took forever to put in. I can't touch my eye. That's the. It, it was weird. It, it it literally took like at least a half an hour, or I had to have somebody else do it, which I didn't like. And also, like I don't know, I don't mind wearing glasses. And um, you know, the rec spec, the 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 Oakleys that I wear during the game, they're super light. I haven't really had issues with them fogging up, uh, but that would be kind of funny, actually. So I don't know. It it also helps with, you know, the lefty reliever kind of yeah. persona, like the quirky, like he's got the obnoxious beard and glasses. You're checking like, the boxes here, yeah. Yeah, he's got, you know, he wears his socks up and he's he's got a obnoxious ginger beard and glasses and he's he's just weird. Throws 88% fastballs. Yeah, like I he's just it. weird. Like so I, you know, I'm I'm aware that it also kind of fits into that 
that whole thing. I think it comes back to, uh, I was talking to somebody a while back, and this is how this question started, because we were both growing up, and we both we both were playing basketball growing up. Yeah. And we both got embarrassed by kids wearing rec specs. <laughs> like, they, for whatever reason, they were the best players in the league. And we're like, is there something, is there something magic in them? <laughs> and where can, where can I get them? How do I need how can I, I don't know them? what leagues you played in. Cause most of the time, the guys that the, in the rec specs, they weren't, they weren't the best player. It was, it was not the case with us. I think that <laughs> mostly it was just, we were not good at basketball. So that was probably like the prerequisite for that. But um, now I'm like trying to, I'm trying to create my own legend about rec specs in my own mind. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, the last time you opened up your music streaming app of choice, Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, whatever it was. Yeah. What was the last thing you listened to on purpose? Um, can I look at my phone right now? Sure, yeah. Let's see. The last thing you listened to on purpose. Yeah, you know, I like get uh, 90% of the time I'll get on and just like click shuffle or click yeah. whatever. Um, it's, uh, it's Broke Down Palace by Grateful Dead. All right. From one of their uh, Europe 72 shows. That's specific. Are you a John Mayer fan? I, I guess not necessarily a John Mayer fan, but what he's done with Dead and Company, I think, is is really, really cool. And I've never seen him live. Actually, my wife and I got into this last night um, because <laughs> I was wearing a Grateful Dead shirt and people, like random people, were just like walking up like to me and giving me like a fist pound or like a like a um, like a hang loose or like uh, like a peace sign, like all night, like probably like three or four people. We went to a pizza place and like the guy saw my shirt and and was like, what's your favorite dead show? And like we started talking about like some of the ones that I had been listening to and he put and like he changed the music in the restaurant to a dead show for you, for us. <laughs> and like my wife is like, what is going on? Because like whenever I wear a dead shirt, like people like kind of like give me grief for it or like make fun of it a little bit. She's like, you're having strangers like high-fiving you in public. And this is so weird. Like what, what the <laughs> heck is going on? And it's um, a strong subculture. And she's like, and, and like somebody asked me if I was a deadhead. And I, I, I said, no, like as much as I like the stuff, I've only really been listening to them for a few years. And I think the prerequisite, there's a prerequisite to be a deadhead. I think it's going to like back-to-back -back shows in the same city or maybe even a different city. There's like a whole thing. Like yeah, you, there are rules. you can't just like start listening to them. And, and, and so like, I'm always, I'm super respectful of her who she is a deadhead. I'm respectful. Like I'm not ever, I'm not going to claim that. So don't worry. But she was like, she was like, it's like stolen valor. Like you're cramping my style here. This, I put in all this work, like, her parents were deadheads and they went to shows when she was growing up and she saw them like dozens of times. Um, and she's like, you've been listening to them for like a little while and like you got your shirt at Target, which I did. <laughs> I got it at Target. It's, you know, it's super comfortable and I've been like washing it nonstop to try to make it look vintage. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much it can it start to peel a little bit before? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you know what? Like I, it looks cool. And, but You're like I got this in 89 in Cedar Rapids. Yeah, it was a great show. Like you should have been there. You, you should check it out. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube or something. <laughs> uh, all right, last question. What piece of advice would you give to uh, a guy coming up in your shoes, professional baseball player, mm -hmm. young-ish in his career, mm -hmm. who has things he wants to talk about besides baseball? What piece of advice would you give to him? Oh, wow. Um, I would say... 
first of all, I would say it's awesome that he wants to do that. I and and I would encourage that and continue to do your homework. Like never stop learning. Um, about whatever it is you're passionate about, whether whether this is whether you have an issue that you can speak to from experience, or whether this is something that's touched your life in a certain way and, and, and shaped the way that you think about things, never stop learning about it. Try to see it from all angles and 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 really become become an expert on it. Um, because if you can speak in a way that is you know responsible because you're 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 informed and it's thoughtful and it's um, coherent and you can articulate these things in a way that that's very much productive to the conversation. People will respect you because they can tell that this is genuine. You're not you're not it's not opportunistic. That's one thing that like I'm always uh, I'm very aware of. Like I I don't want to be seen as jumping on a bandwagon and, and becoming opportunistic. Like I want people to know that like, I feel strongly about this. I'm invested in this. I have, I've tried to, to learn about it. So I have some skin in the game and it can be, it can feel dicey. And if, and if you're not sure about something, you know, don't tweet it. Don't, don't put it out there. Don't do an interview because that's kind of the beauty of social media is that you can put things out on your terms. Right. You can control that 100%. So don't, like we talked about before, don't paint yourself into a corner. Make sure, let sit sit with it for a little bit and maybe proofread it a couple of times and make sure that this is the angle that you do want to come at it from and that there's nothing in your tone or the way that you phrased it that can be taken out of context. But please, like, please, like, use your voice and 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 be a part of, you know, the conversation, no matter what it is. I think there's a lot of guys that can, that in our game can, um, they can speak to a lot of different things. I think it's good for the game when guys are able to, uh, you know, have interests and have things that they're passionate about away from the field that that they can, uh, you know, bring into the the fold. Yeah, I agree. We've got a unique group of men in baseball right now they come from a yeah i mean a variety of backgrounds so there are a lot of passions out there and there are a lot of perspectives that need to be shared and need to be cultivated yeah um so i appreciate you being on the podcast man this has been a this lot of awesome. fun uh we've had a blast i'm i'm really grateful that you know you you had me on and this has been this has been really fun are you going to keep doing it during the season? That's the goal. If That's I, awesome. as I always tell people, is as often as I get material, I'm going to put it out there. I'm not going to. I'm not going to hold it back. Okay. I'm not gonna, so it's not like a once or twice a month. I'm kind trying of thing. not to put like a you know, bunch of rules and restrictions on myself, but I am trying to also kick myself in the ass a little bit and make sure that I am being proactive about asking guys. I think it's cool, man. I think so much of this, like one of the things about this game, we get to travel to some cool cities, you know, we get to go all over the country and whether you're meeting guys from different teams and, and having them on, or there's some guys in your clubhouse that you've had on guys that are doing some really, really cool things, you know, for the game. And so I think this is, this is a really cool thing that you're doing and I'll definitely be listening. So well, Sean, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. Until next time, guys. Thanks for listening. Yeah.